Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! This is Behind the Bastards, the podcast about... Robert trying to do a festive introduction and then losing steam because he didn't really have a plan. Hey, uh, 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 Chris, can you insert in a sound of me murdering Santa Claus here? And some jingle bells. Some jingle bells. Like, I'm not joking. Jingle bells and stabbing. Put it it all in right here where we're talking. Over us talking. And now I'm going to introduce our guest today, Margaret Killjoy. Margaret! You are the host of a podcast called Live Like the World is Dying. You just published a book through AK Press uh, called A Country of Ghosts, um, which is fucking awesome. I read it uh, last weekend in a a single long day of obsessive reading. How are you doing today, Margaret? I'm I'm doing good. Good. Um, Well, Margaret, how do you feel about Christmas? Very complicated. I feel very yeah, complicated about Christmas. I think most Christmas. people have complicated feelings about Christmas. How do you feel about uh, heroes? Um, you know, actually, also complicated. Also complicated, complicated, right? <laughs> yeah. Fundamentally problematic idea. Well, yeah. our subjects today, I don't know that I would call heroes, but I do, I think they do the most heroic thing that you can do, which is... Uh, change with the times uh, rather than repeatedly doing the same thing and hoping for different results, um, which Fair. there's there's an element of heroism. Um, they're also terrorists, kind of. Uh, so it, this is going to okay. be a complicated episode, Margaret. Okay. Ha- have you heard of the Tupamaros of Uruguay? I have not. Okay, well, this is good. And by the way, if you look up Tupamaros, there's also a Venezuelan Marxist-Leninist political party called the Tupamaros. This is a different 
a very different thing. Um, if you've heard much about Uruguayan politics in recent years, uh, it's probably that they were the first nation on earth to legalize marijuana. This is back in 2013. Uh, they also legalized gay marriage the same year, uh, which was about two years faster than the US of A. Both of these reforms were signed into law under the presidency of a dude named Jose Mujica. Now, if you know a single Uruguayan politician, he's probably the guy. Uh, the most prominent piece of international press relating to him is an article from the Guardian in 2014 titled, Is This the World's Most Radical President? And this is the Guardian article is very much like radical from like a centrist liberal standpoint. Um, but it refers he's referred to a lot as Uruguay's anarchist president, again, in a lot of like not anarchist media, because he's not he's not an anarchist, although it is fair to say he's got there's anarchist influences in his in his politics and his attitude. Um, you might have guessed that he's not an anarchist by the fact that he's a president. Uh, right. But he is. He's 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 pretty rad. It, it's hard not to love this guy when you read about like aspects of his personality. The thing he's most famous for is his humility. Like is this the guy he, who uh, drives his own car. Like he drives dri- like he, no, well. Usually car. he rides a bicycle, the same bicycle mm-hmm. he's maintained for sixty years. But he has a small Volkswagen. He refuses to have like a limo or a driver. Um, he usually wears sandals and like worn old. He would just usually uh, he used to wear like stained jumpers was like the only thing he would wear. <laughs> and they finally got him to like at least wear a clean shirt. So there's like photos of him with like Hugo Chavez and Obama. And he's just like dressed like a dude who lives in Latin America is just like going to work. You know, he's, he's like a farmer a lot of the time. Um, like he runs a farm and has for most of his life. Um, he's just like not a guy who looks like other uh, world leaders. Um, and one of the reasons he's become so popular again, is like the, every, every liberal's favorite quote unquote radical politician, um, mm-hmm. was this moment in 2014 when he gave a speech to the United Nations that included this bit, which, uh, Sophie's going to play for us now. And this is, uh, it's, it's a UN speech. So he's speaking in Spanish, but the UN is, you know, doing, uh, they've got like a guy it reading in English. Uh, so, that's not actually Jose's voice, but yeah. And that allows us uh, uh, to contemplate uh, the beauty of nature. We have destroyed uh, the jungles, the green jungles, the true jungles, and we've created anonymous cement jungles. We have tackled uh, uh, sedentarianism with walkers, Insomnia with pills, uh, solitude with electronics. Um, are we happy when we are so far from the human essence? We have to ask ourselves this question. Stunned, we have uh, fled from our biology, <coughs> which defends life uh, for life itself um, as a superior cause in itself, uh, and we've replaced it. Uh, by functional consumerism and accumulation politics. Yeah, so that's that's uh, pretty rad um, for a world leader. Uh, and yeah, then, <laughs> yeah. That's the most I've ever agreed with uh, anything a president said in a long time. <laughs> Especially in the UN. Um, yeah. I think you'll feel that way about this next segment here, too. But today, today... It's time to begin to fight to to prepare a world without borders. The globalized economy has no other inclination but private interest. Uh, The private interest of very few 
and every nation-state uh, looks at uh, its own stability. Yeah, so getting up there, talking about how we shouldn't have borders, uh, I don't know, uh, That that's, to me, pretty rad to hear a president saying at the United Nations. Um yeah, and you can see why people uh, you can see why people went gaga for this guy, right? And why they call yeah. him an anarchist because there's there's anarchisty elements of what he's saying, um, especially the whole we should be moving towards a world without borders. But you know, he's also uh, a president, um, and it, it's it's like we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Jose later. But one of the things I do think is interesting about him because you can find other world leaders like saying good shit talking a good game about all this stuff and then like going back home to their mansions and taking Mm -hmm. private jets places and like jose does one of the things that kind of separates him is he um he wears not not only does he like not live in a mansion or anything but like he flies coach like he's not he's not living the sort (laughs) of like yeah but what if he has like a secret mansion bunker underneath his his (laughs) tiny house (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's not impossible. Although a lot, most of the time, when like journalists come to visit him at his home, like you'll, there's a couple of different stories. Like some some Japanese or Korean film crew will come and he'll like meet them at his front door and they'll go drink Jim Bean under a tree, um, which is how I would greet a film crew if I yeah. <laughs> That's good because people always talked about how George Bush was like the president you'd drink a beer with. That mm-hmm. was like his whole thing was like. He's the one you'd want to drink a beer with. But I think that the president that you drink Jim Beam under a tree. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, it, I, I, I think that would be I would I would prefer that to like having a staged photo op beer with a president at the White House, which seems horrible. Um, again, we'll cover later. There's a lot of criticisms of, of Jose from the left, primarily, like most mm-hmm. of the people who have issues with him uh, are, are like leftists um but what i find more interesting than than his presidency is where he came from uh and the kind of intellectual and moral journey he represents not just from his himself but for the the political organization that he came from because uh, jose because jose musica got his uh start in politics through what you might call non-traditional means he was a terrorist as a young man um and not like a we're not like i like that not like in a light way like and it got shot repeatedly in gunfights with the cops way like he went as hard as he possibly could have um without dying uh and the group that he was a member of is one of the most fascinating insurgent organizations i've ever heard about the tupamaros um so in order to explain the tupamaros we're going to have to get into a little bit of what uruguay is uh it is a it's a it's the second smallest country in south america it's like middling sized as countries go it's about the size of washington state um which is bigger than a lot of European countries. So it's not not a tiny country, but tiny for South America. Um, be- before, you know, white folks showed up and started doing what white folks do, uh, the indigenous inhabitants of Uruguay were the Charua. Uh, they had been pushed into the area by another tribe up in Paraguay in the generations before European conquest. And when the Spanish showed up on their shores in 1516, their overall response could be best characterized as, fuck this shit. You know, they did the... They did the fight thing, and they were really good at fighting. They fought like hell, and that synergized well with the fact that Uruguay didn't have anything colonizers wanted at that time. There was no, like, gold or silver there. 
So the the locals were pretty good guerrilla fighters, and there wasn't anything valuable. So it didn't really get settled when all it didn't get colonized when like all of the areas around it were getting colonized. It took uh, longer. So there were some light attempts by the Europeans to settle there in the 1500s, but the first permanent Spanish settlement there wasn't founded until 1624 at a place called Soriano. Uh, about 50 years later, the Portuguese came and built a fort, and this sparked uh, an Uruguay rush between Spain and Portugal, who started gobbling up chunks of land as fast as they could. And again, the reasoning seemed to be less, there's stuff here we want, and more, the other guys are starting mm-hmm. to take stuff here, so we should we should do that. Um, it's great. Uh, so That went really well for everyone, right? Yeah, I mean, it goes it goes the way it goes in all of what's now Latin America. Oh, so terribly. Yeah, terribly. Yeah, terribly. Okay. Although, I mean, I guess less bad. Uruguay kind of gets off better than, well, no, not really. Yeah. <laughs> so the, today, the capital of Uruguay is Montevideo, which was founded by the Spanish in the early 1700s as like a fortress city and trading port. And it was specifically founded because the Portuguese had Buenos Aires. And so the Spanish needed a port near there that could be their port right like that's again it's all part of this like cold war kind of kind of shit going on between spain and portugal um and so for the next century or so uruguay wound up in the crosshairs of a bunch of different spats between colonizing powers and it wasn't just the spanish and the portuguese the british occupy montevideo at some at 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 one point like everybody's going through here now like right they get kind of a hundred years off compared to everybody else but once colonizing comes for uruguay it comes hard you know um so people don't often like being battled over by foreign powers uh, and by 1811 a guy named jose artigas launched a revolution against the spanish crown which uruguay won uh, artigas was adamant that the new government should be a federal system with high levels of political autonomy for each region this led to a civil war between uh, the people in buenos aires and the people in montevideo and there's all of this fighting between forces most of which is like less it's not quite like states fighting as much as it is like it's these codios these these warlords right who have like mm-hmm. are kind of aligned with one side or the other and control regions and they're all kind of murdering each other um Wait, and it's a civil war but but it's between buenos aires buenos aires Mont- and montevideo are kind of broadly speaking it seems to be like the main sides here okay. um and there there's a bunch of murdering and and all of the fighting in this period effectively wipes out most of the remaining indigenous people in the region and so i think yeah. a lot of people in uruguay have some like like a lot of latin america have some indigenous ancestry down yeah. the line but like the communities are just wiped out and most uruguayans are actually um spanish and italian heritage okay. um kind of as a result of this like again we're, we're talking in really broad terms so when um, we fought for its independence sorry when it fought for its yeah. independence it wasn't indigenous folks it was instead kind of like i mean i'm sure US they considered revolution. themselves that but it was like the right. children of children of children of people who had come to colonize and there was again some like intermarrying and stuff between right. communities but yeah it was the people who i'm sure at that point considered themselves the indigenous people of uruguay fighting against the colonial power but who were right. also the descendants of yeah you know okay. this is like all a lot of latin american history you know yeah uh 
Yeah, so uh, things started to settle down by the turn of the next century, uh, and in 1903, the fairly new state of Uruguay elected a president named Jose Bazé. Uh, Bazé, he's generally just known as Bazé, um, was a socialist, um, or at least close enough. Um, and the new republic credits him for building, quote, perhaps the most perfectly rendered socialist society the world has ever seen. Now, that's how the writer from the New Republic describes it. I have found actual academic uh, theses on Uruguayan politics, none of whom say anything close to that. <laughs> um, so I don't know, like the, the, the writer from the New Republic actually went there, did a lot of work. I'm sure knows more about Uruguay than me, but I'm sure these scholars know more than that person. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's probably fair to say that it's a little overstated to call it the most perfectly rendered socialist society the world's ever seen. Um, but Bazet did do a lot of rad shit. He taxed landowners and he put the money into pensions for working people. He was an advocate of unions. Healthcare in Uruguay was ruled to be a universal right. And this is like in 1911 or something like that. Um, higher education was made free. And under him, the literacy rate hit 95%. Um, and I'm going to quote from a, a, the New Republic here, quoting a historian. His idea, Gerardo Caetano, uh, Uruguay's foremost historian of the Bizet era, explained to me, was that you can't have liberty without equality. There is no psychic liberty, in other words, for the poor unless they can imagine themselves equal to the privileged. One of the many new laws Bizet implemented was to correct perceived imbalances and gave women greater rights to request divorce than their husbands. The logic was that men are more powerful, Caetano said, so to treat men and women equally would result in an outcome that still favored men so this is like again 1903 yeah. to 19 like this guy's pretty you keep running into this in uruguay yeah. in history these dudes were like <laughs> well i didn't expect that from somebody saying this in like 1905 <laughs> yeah people are still struggling with that basic concept yeah like that's incredibly controversial today and this guy is like yeah we're all rubbing dirt into our wounds and also you can't just treat men and women equally because structural inequality means that men will still have more power which is mm-hmm. like it's pretty dope I would say pretty dope. Um, and it's it's fair to say, like, it is, it, it, the, the New Republic overstates things, but it is, I think, fair to say that, like, most recently colonized nations, and most recently colonized nations in Latin America, because, like, the 1800s is kind of the period where a lot of them, you know, have their revolutions and, and get free from the Europeans who had dominated them. Uruguay winds up better off than a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Um, but the New Republic does give an incomplete idea of Bizet's time and power. I found a master's thesis from thomas moore of texas tech which gives it goes into a lot more detail and cites a lot of other scholars um and notes that bazay's socialist reforms weren't just incomplete they also carried with them the seeds that would sprout right there violently in a few generations quote no matter how democratic the government appeared to be there were some serious drawbacks and flaws the main problem which plagued the government for years was that executive responsibility was divided between a president and a national council this division of responsibility created no serious problems so long as things ran smoothly and all the council members were in agreement. This was apparent during the prosperous 1920s. Presidents and councils could toss problems back and forth with no damaging effect because of the evidence of economic affluence during that period. It was during the Depression years, 1929 to 1933, that the Colegiado, the National Council, um, 
demonstrated its incapacity for coping with the rising inflation and employment. And basically, when there's not factionalism and strong political party disputes, this works okay. When there is, everything grinds off, uh, grinds down to gridlock. And in Uruguay, you have kind of two broad parties, and the history of these parties goes back to the Civil War period. I'm not, we don't need to get into a lot, but it's the the Colorado Party and the Blanco Party. And um, I think the Colorado Party is kind of broadly liberalish, and the 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 Blanco Party is a little more conservative. Um, mm-hmm. Not that they. Not to like, they don't like graft onto the Republican and Democratic Party, easily, obviously, <laughs> right? Like, but that's probably broadly right. Um, so the president at the time when the Great Depression hits and like shit gets fucked up is a dude named Gabriel Terra. And he gets pissed off at the fact that council members couldn't come to any solid ideas about how to deal with the economic collapse, right? Like nobody can agree on anything. And so this system that had worked when everyone was rich stops working when the money stops flowing, which happens a lot in world history. Yeah. Um, all of his attempts to remedy the situation got shut down by the council because of political divisions. So in 1933, he bypasses the political gridlock in the council by doing a coup d'etat against his own government. Uh, he dissolves the National Council and Congress. He censors newspapers and he basically, basically makes himself a dictator for a while there, right? Um, uh-huh. But not quite because he also calls for a new constitution which is written in 1934 and establishes a new one-man presidency with a Senate, which would be permanently divided in half between the two major parties. Um I don't know that this I'd say this helped, but like also by 34, things are starting to get better economically. So it's it may be that this reduced gridlock somewhat. It may just be that like money starts coming in again. And so all of the problems are lessened because there's money. Um, I don't know. Politics are kind of like a relationship uh, in that regard. <laughs> things can work great until fine. you're broke. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the problem, though, with this this new constitution is that it completely enshrines a two party system into law because, like, you have yeah. to have the, the the Senate split between the the two parties. It's a very immovable two party system. Um, but still, like, even though this is gonna create problems later, uh, kind of during the the late thirties, Uruguay starts doing a lot better. They are in the thirties uh, up to the four and up through like the forties. They're the most urbanized and prosperous nation in Latin America, and this is a very urban country. Most of the population lives in cities, like the, uh, okay. the vast majority. So it's not like a lot of Latin America where you have like this really geographically spread out populations and a lot of them are in the mountains or something like that. Um, kind of everybody lives in the cities in Uruguay. And it has the lowest level of social inequality in Latin America and one of the lowest levels of social inequality in the world. Some of this is due to government policy because Bizet does do a lot of like good socialisty stuff. Um, but it's also a lot of it has to do with Uruguayan culture which mm-hmm. I'm not an expert on, but sounds fascinating. One of the cool things about it, it's considered to be like the classic car capital of the world, not because everybody's like collecting old cars, but because it's considered shameful to not keep a car working. Like to buy an, if you're buying a new uh. car, it should be because your old vehicle cannot be fixed under any circumstances. Um, or at least this so the was the attitude version of like the time. Cuba thing. Yeah, exactly. Where it's just like, well, no, you keep fixing the car. You don't buy a right. new car. Like unless right. your car is just like, shattered you know but in this Um, case it's more like chosen instead of just because of embargoes yes and there's you know there's rich people and there's poor people but they often especially throughout most of the 20th century you you couldn't necessarily tell the difference apart from uh, on them based on how they travel or how they dress because Mm -hmm. there's this distaste culturally for displaying your wealth so even if you're 
super rich, you kind of dress like a working class person because that's again, it's it, there's there's just kind of like <laughs> cultural mores against showing off when you have money. And that contributes to the 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 lessened levels of social inequality in the country. Um, so when World War Two comes a knock and Uruguay winds up producing meat, leather and a handful of other goods for the allies. And this is one of the things Bizet gets like the scholars I've been reading criticize Bizet for is he kind of started this attitude of like we have this socialist welfare state and it's going to be entirely supported by uh, providing these products to Western countries. And in fact, uh, Jose Mujica, the president of Uruguay or former president of Uruguay, says that basically the big mistake Uruguay made was turning itself into a lackey of the British Empire and supplying all of their needs and kind of tying its social, its welfare state and its prosperity to the, the, the British Empire continuing to need these supplies, right? Um, but during World War II, it's great to be selling shit to the British and the Americans, right? right. Uh, it's, it's a good time to be selling them shit. They're buying up everything. Uh, there's this big economic g- boom, and it again kind of hides the gridlock um, of the that that has been put under this like second constitution with a permanent two party state. So again, as long as there's cash to blow and cash to keep the welfare stuff going, everything's all right. Um, and in, in fact, Europeans in the 40s and 50s call Uruguay the Switzerland of South America. Um, which is not accurate um, and based, you know, on Eurocentrism and shit, but uh, yeah, because they're very much doing their own thing and they're and not, at all not like neutral, <laughs> not neutral, not a primary, primarily a place for rich people to store their money. Um, yeah. You know, like there's a lot of reasons why that's not a good way to describe them. Not surrounded by mountains that they've turned into hollowed out fortresses. Yeah. It's just because it's nice there compared to yeah. like a lot of places they're having wars and like difficulty, like fighting mm. uh, between the government and Uruguay. There's a lot less conflict socially in this period so that they're just like, oh, Basically, they're saying we didn't fuck up Uruguay as much as we fucked up a lot of places around it. So it's the Switzerland of South America. (laughs) Yeah. You know who else didn't fuck up Uruguay? And definitely isn't neutral. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Yep. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. 
Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. All right, we're back, and we're... The skiing ad was good. Talking about Uruguay. <laughs> Uh, so, um, things are going great in Uruguay through the 40s, World War II's great forum, and they keep making bank. They kind of transition from servicing the British Empire to servicing the American Empire through through the Korean War. So, we keep buying a shitload of stuff from Uruguay through the Korean War. And then the United States enters a permanent era of peace uh, that was completely unbroken for the next 70 years, which is, yeah. you know, obvi- yeah, everybody knows about that period, the the... The, the Pax Americana, where, where we weren't involved in any wars. Um, but that Uruguay, protest movement to try mm-hmm. and get us to be involved in wars. Yeah, yeah. All those people who wanted us to get into Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. John, John Lennon had a big song about that. Um, yeah. War is starting, I think, if you want yeah, it. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Let's get into a war. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Uruguay stops getting big fat government paychecks after the Korean War and the economy contracts heavily like it's it, it kind of goes into free fall um the government's short on money it can't pay for these social programs they've built and they don't want to do austerity uh so they spend they like burn through the country's currency reserves and they start taking on debt from international lenders at kind of ruinous rates this happens to a lot of other places in this period of time this is kind of like the birth of the the kind of global debt system that exists to this day because a lot of countries get quote unquote like liberated from the colonial powers and then take on loans from those powers to like, anyway, it's, it's a fucked up period, uh, a bunch of fucked up shit's happening in this period and it's happening to Uruguay too. Um, so this is, this is kind of disastrous and it leads to a massive political reorganization. Um, members of Congress push a plebiscite, uh, that the country votes on. Um, and this plebiscite reinstitutes the national council and uses it to replace the presidency. So they get, now they don't have a president anymore and they have this national council and the Senate who are trying to do everything. Um, and even though this is a plebiscite because kind of the social stability is starting to crumble in this period of time, the mid to late fifties, most Uruguayans don't vote for the plebiscite. So it passes narrowly and it completely changes the political situation. Um, 
Okay, what's and it does, on the site? I'm sorry, I was trying. That's to... when that's when the government says, "Hey, we gotta we gotta make a big change, and instead of doing normal political things, everyone in the country gets to vote, yay or nay, uh, on this thing okay. that we're gonna do." It would actually be rad if we could do some stuff that way, because things might we might be able to do some good stuff that everybody agrees on, um, but we can't seem to pass. Uh, but we'll never. We don't. It's there's a, a bunch of reasons why it's not really possible in the U.S. right now. Um, yeah. And it wasn't great there because like this is a plebiscite, but most Uruguayans don't vote. Um, and it's it's a bet. Anyway, all it does is kind of reinforce the factionalism that's been getting worse and worse and worse throughout the 20th century in Uruguayan politics. And in the late 1950s, there's just massive unemployment um, and there's these huge labor protests, hundreds and hundreds of them um, as a result of the fact that this this welfare state and this kind of very pro-union environment has like broken down. A lot of workers aren't unionized at this point, and a lot of them are like starving basically um and the national council this new government with a national council proves that they can be as vicious as a government with the president and they crack down horribly on these protesters like they Uruguay doesn't have a lot of police or a big military but they throw them out there to just beat the absolute piss out of people who are are protesting like that's kind of where the government immediately goes once Uruguay has its first like mass civil disobedience campaigns um what they couldn't the more they outnumber do, people yeah. The more they outnumber people, the less violent they have to be. Like, yeah. Some of the most violent police are the ones who, yeah. you know, that's the way that they can take I control. Mean, yeah. There's not a lot of police in Portland, but they're pretty fucking violent. Um, yeah. So they can, what's interesting to me is that this national council government, despite being like very split by the two party system, all agree, well, yeah, we have to, we have to have the police brutalize protesters, but they can't agree on anything, any ways to fix the economy. Like they can't, they can't get that together. They're just like, well, the poor people are getting organized, so we should like fuck them up. Um, So you said this doesn't map to Republicans and Democrats because it sounds It does a bit. I (laughs) only just in this one way, like in that everyone agrees. Like, I think I've got this right. I've read scholars who are smarter than me, and this seems to be what they're saying, and I'm just sort of rephrasing it. I never want to be saying too directly, it's just like here, even though there's patterns throughout different countries in history that are similar, because people are all basically the same. So, yes, people in power agree that you should beat up the people who are trying to stop them from being in power. That is is the thing that maps onto every country ever. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It's the, uh, it's everything from, yeah, uh, 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 it's everything. It's every country. It's every government, socialist yeah. or capitalist. Uh, yeah. oh, people are angry. Send the cops in to fuck them up. <laughs> yep. Uh, so the they do that. Stick. Yeah. It's the people stick in this case. Uh, so in 1950, well, kind of, cause this is also like, this is, it's not really the people's mm-hmm. stick. It's yeah, way yeah. too much to call this. It is a country with a lot of socialist policies. It's certainly not like a socialized socialist nation. Right. Um, in 1958, there's another election and the party that wins is the party who had kind of been slightly in the minority before and had never like been the, the party in power. And they win election by promising and like take control over all of the government by promising to fix a bunch of shit that they'd been so they'd been the minority party for years and had thus gained power by saying look at how much the people in power suck we'll do it differently now Mm -hmm. they're in power and they have to like reform everything so they try to fix the welfare system which was going broke but nothing they do works Mm -hmm. um and nothing they do stops the protests and the labor marches now all of this comes to pass in the late 50s as the first generation to truly benefit from uruguay's massive educational reforms grows into adulthood because remember uh had made college free and like uh, people after him too there'd been like repeated they built up a pretty good a really good uh, educational system in the country um and you know widespread literacy and whatnot and in the like the late 50s the people who were like 
18 to 30 or so are like the first generation who had really taken full advantage of this. And Uruguay in this period has like one of the highest percentages of of individual print publications per capita um, of anywhere in the world. Um, And they had like for an idea of like how big this educational boom was between the 50s and the 70s, the number of students receiving college degrees in Uruguay increased by 117 percent. So you've got. Mm-hmm. you've got the economy collapsing inequality growing protests in the streets increasing government crackdowns and the largest most educated generation in the country's history comes of age right what is historically what happens when all those things go to go down at the same time awesome right? shit yeah. really awesome good shit yeah <laughs> oh margaret you're gonna like some of the graffiti we're about to talk about so by the late 1960s, you've got this situation where Uruguay is a decade into the, uh, well, mid-1960s. You've got the early to mid-1960s. You've got a situation where Uruguay is in a, a decade into economic contraction. Globally, not just in Uruguay, but like the left all over the world in the early mm-hmm. and mid-60s is engaged in an increasing series of protests and revolts. Mm-hmm. Domestically, Uruguay has this huge population of educated people who've all spent a lot of time reading Marx and Mao and Guevara and Bakunin, and they're, mm-hmm. they're watching this two-party system. System, tilt rightwards and get more violent and militarize the police for and everything keeps getting worse right mm-hmm. a, a situation no one else in the world can identify with no. um and all of these trends kind of coalesced as they sometimes do into a single person, or at least they kind of washed through this person. And his because of unique things about him, it kind of colored the way that they flooded over the rest of the population. And this guy's name was Raul Sindic. He was an agricultural law student from Montevideo. And in 1963, he decided to do something about the fact that all the sugarcane and beet cutters, like sugarcane, cutting sugarcane and sugar beet is like this horrible really unpleasant like job that is necessary to process a cash crop right and mm-hmm. these people are despite you know how socialized uruguay is supposed to be they're not unionized they're barely getting by on poverty rate wages and they're attempting to unionize and protesting against unfair working conditions and raul syndic is kind of like a middle class upper class like law student and with a bunch of other law students he tries to help organize these workers and they gather a bunch of these people together into a march and they have a 350 mile protest march into montevideo that ends in a huge fight with the cops Mm -hmm. um and stuff like this is happening all over the place raul is just like one of the organizers who's part of this massive labor like labor protest surge at the time um the fact that the government had used such violence to stop a union drive leads raul to kind of reconsider consider again he'd, he'd been a law student he was planning to like work within the system to change it and seeing the police beat the shit out of all these these people um makes him decide that the two-party system is hopeless he's like well they're both willing to beat us when we when we try to organize for better conditions so why would i try to work within that system um yeah. is kind of what raul thinks um i know wild right that you would <laughs> come, <laughs> come to a to reasonable that, conclusion based come on to a very reasonable conclusion yeah. <laughs> So he's not the only guy thinking this way. He's kind of, I think, the the most charismatic guy to think this way and the best mm-hmm. and probably the best of organizer of them. And he starts getting together small numbers of like-minded men and women. Um, this is a very gender equality group that he starts to build. But they're all kind of agreed about the fact that they should affiliate together and find ways to execute their desire to overthrow the government, right? That's the the conversations these people are having. Um, Uh And their numbers start to grow. Uh, Protests overtook Uruguayan streets in the early 1960s. Um, 
And um, yeah, uh, all of this state violence keeps bringing more and more people to Raul's way of thinking. And the, the they start to kind of formalize their attitudes towards like, we should be organizing to overthrow this system. Now, one of the positives about Raul is that he fucking hated explosives. Um, he was like, okay. did not like bombing things. Um, yeah. And the group, like they would eventually use some explosives, but they kind of landed on firearms as the natural tool to seek to execute some of the things that they wanted to do in order to overthrow the government. Um, guns would enable them to carry out a variety of actions and do it in a way that would target people rather than killing like random right, civilians as yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. It's slightly more discriminate forms yeah. of violence. Um, yeah. It always yeah. goes well. Both, it always goes well. Methods. Yeah. 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 And his, it, he was also very committed to the idea that you don't target people you target Mm -hmm. institutions um Mm -hmm. like banks the police and the impotent government that had been squandering their future so as they (laughs) increasingly talk and increasing things get more and more formalized they eventually decide to like form an organization which they call the tupamaros uh now this was actually an acknowledgement of the history of indigenous resistance in latin america tupac Mm -hmm. amaru was the last living member of the incan royal family and he led an insurrection against spanish rule and was murdered in 15 so they kind of, as they are starting to form what becomes this insurgent organization, they're kind of looking back to specifically to get, even though most of these people are like primarily Spanish and Italian descended Uruguayans, they're they're very much identifying with the history of indigenous resistance to colonialism. Like that's, it's not a, it's not for nothing that they name their group that. Um, Which is real blurry. Yeah. I, you know, it's like, there's a lot that, could be said about that that i don't quite know how to say and i'm i'm certainly not nearly enough of an <laughs> expert yeah. on like indigenous struggles in uruguay to like right. try to make more of i just think it's worth noting that's who they, that's what they're trying to signal like that's right, totally. important for understanding how they conceive of themselves yeah um the first Tupamaros were largely middle-class, young, white-collar workers and students. Since more than half of the Uruguayan population lived in Montevideo, the, it, most it, it successful insurgent groups, and the groups that they're looking at, because they're directly looking at, like, Cuba and Che Guevara mm-hmm. and stuff, and, like, a lot of the successful insurgent groups in Mao that they're... they're, they're um, modeling themselves after are mountain fighters right like mm-hmm. because it's the best place to be if you're an insurgent is the mountains right that's <laughs> and there's, they're in switzerland there's a, so it's why there's kurds right it's yeah. because mountains yeah, totally. are a good place to fight in yeah um but uh Ur- uruguay the places where people live at least there's not really mountains everybody no. lives in the city like more, more than half the population like 60 70 percent live in montevideo so mm-hmm. these are urban guerrillas and in fact in latin america if i'm not mistaken they are the very first urban guerrilla organization um and so they have to they have to carry out and plan and organize themselves very differently as a result they carry out their first attack in 1963 against the swiss gun club in montevideo which is like a rich person gun club in the capital um nobody gets harmed in this attack but they steal dozens of guns which they it's then always start the first move it's yeah of course cool. you've got to get guns right you find yeah. the place with the guns and you rob it with the one and, gun you happen to have or a pointy and, stick I think in this case, they just kind of burgle it because like none of these people were expecting anyone to break in and steal their Mausers. Um, So they get a shitload of guns from the Swiss gun club. They, you know, they get handed out to people, yada, yada. Um, And from the start, Raul and other early members of the group um, knew that it was going to be, there was going to be state repression at some point. And so there's the way it's organized is there's a bunch of independent, independent cells that are like five to i think the biggest ones were like a couple of dozen people but usually like five to 15 people and each cell is supposed to be 
have its own find its own sources of funding usually robbing stuff find its own weapons and be able to completely replicate the entire organization from within itself and yeah. also be unaware of the other cells although there is like a nine person coordinating council that's responsible for organizing stuff um so they they you know they set this up in and again they're they're very consciously patterning themselves off of other insurgent groups at the time they are not while a lot of their inspirations are Marxist-Leninists, they're not really Marxist-Leninists. A lot of their inspirations are anarchists. They're not really anarchists. They're very much not, while there's a lot of theory and ideology and they're reading all of these guys, it's very kind of like a pan-left insurgent movement. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, which is, which is interesting to me. Um, so from 1963 to 1968, their attacks gradually escalate. Uh, again, their first actions get them guns, which they then use to carry out what they call armed propaganda. Now, this is a local idea in Uruguayan radicalism that, that is influenced by the old anarchist idea of propaganda of the deed, right? In the late 1800s yeah. and early 1900s, anarchists are murdering presidents and kings and in the hope of inspiring other people to do more of that so that eventually there's no presidents and kings. I I think that's like a fair broad strokes description yeah. of the idea the idea was like these people don't know how to read texts so mm -hmm. let's show them what we mean which actually now, the, didn't start out as um didn't actually start out as assassinations it started out as like burning property records yes. and like anyway and, sorry and, and what's interesting to me about the Tupamaro, as you said, the propaganda of the deed didn't start out as being based around murdering people. Mm -hmm. Tupamaro armed armed propaganda is never focused primarily around killing people. Cool. That, it, 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 that's aspects of it later on. Mm -hmm. um, but from the beginning, they have a very different attitude for what armed propaganda should be. And I'm going to quote from a write-up by a War is Boring article uh, about their first action, one of their first actions. Quote, one of the group's first actions involved hijacking a truck filled with chickens and turkeys that was headed to a Christmas banquet. Twenty Tupamaros holding revolvers and knives attacked the truck. They called themselves Junior Jose Artigas Unit, a reference to Uruguayan independence fighter Jose Gervasio Artigas. Uh, the Tupamaros left a note that read, Revolutionaries share in the Christmas of the poor and call upon them to form committees in each district to fight against rising prices. They handed out the turkeys and chickens in poor neighborhoods of the capital. Aww. Yeah, so like that's the armed propaganda. Like we are going yeah. to use our guns to rob a banquet for rich people and mm -hmm. redistribute the food to the poor which yeah, is yeah. great that's yeah. awesome like no notes hard to have an issue with that right yeah yeah so over the next couple of years the tupamaros engage in ever grander acts of armed propaganda they would rob banks and take piles of cash and redistribute it immediately to the poor they would mm -hmm. also rob banks to like fund their operations but a lot of the time they're yeah. taking cash and then immediately handing it out to poor people and it's like they're robbing specifically often investment banks and saying like these people have been robbing <laughs> you so let's rob them and give it back to you mm -hmm. um at one point they heisted a popular casino for foreigners in the resort town of puente del este and they realized after they get away with the bag that they'd also stolen the employee pool of tips which they return because they're like we're not here to fuck with working people like your yeah. tips are yours like we're not taking your fucking tips don't worry guys that's how to be classy <laughs> that is classy as hell where they're like well we wanted to steal from this casino but we didn't like we understand you guys work in there like you didn't do nothing wrong here's your tip money back <laughs> Um, and the fundamentally pro-social ends of most Tupamaro crimes endear them to people, right? Like, they're yeah. extremely popular, obviously. Yeah. Um, their antics make them famous the world over. One time they robbed a fancy nightclub and spray... So, like, they go into this rich person nightclub in a nice part of Montevideo and, like, rob it at gunpoint. And then they spray paint on the wall 
Everybody dances or nobody dances. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I fucking love. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's just incredibly, incredibly cool. Um, Time Magazine declares them the Robin Hood gorillas. And their motto evinced, they also had a motto that kind of, I was saying they're very pan-leftist and open-minded towards questions of tendency and political theory. And their motto is, words divide us, action unites us. Okay. Mm-hmm. Liking these guys so far. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're pretty dope. <laughs> so one of these gorillas uh, is a young Jose Mujica, um, you know, the, for, the future president of, of uh-huh. Uruguay. Uh, Pepe, as he's most commonly known, was born on May 20th, 1935 to a poor farming family outside of Montevideo. He was the firstborn of several brothers. Um, his family was Basque on one side and Italian on the other. His dad was the foreman for a small farm, which went belly up when Jose was five. When he was in third grade at i think age eight his dad dies which throws the family into total poverty uh it forces young pepe to take to the streets selling flowers and working as a bakery to support his siblings and his mom he was from an early age a generous person walter pernas mujica's biographer notes that as a child jose offered all of his toys to other kids in the neighborhood because he he wanted to share everything that he had um he was born about six years after the death of Bazet, that president who had made all that lovely policies um and even though he grew up during what is generally seen as uruguay's golden years his family is dirt poor and he is mired in poverty so he never he doesn't have like a, a rosy lens towards the past he's very mm-hmm. progressive in part because he's comes up during uruguay's golden age and like yeah life's fucking it hard sucks. for poor yeah. people yeah um one of the most influential moments in his young life is there there's a butchery near his house um and the union for it is an an anarcho-syndicalist union and the workers there go on strike and during a negotiation they get angry at their employer so they hold up his trucks at gunpoint and redistribute all the meat in them to the poor um so this is like one of the defining moments of jose's childhood Uh is being like oh that's pretty you see why this guy becomes a tubamaro because he's like oh yeah that that fucking rules yeah yeah (laughs) um that's how i ate one day yeah that's how i ate one day i know what i know what makes people appreciate an organization is when they (laughs) help you eat yeah um yeah, it's pretty pretty rad. Uh, the action stirred something in him. And given the similarities between this and a lot of Tupamaro action, again, it's easy to see why he winds up where he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also political in kind of the, the legal sense from an early age. His uncle is a nationalist and part of the, the National Party, um, and he becomes a general secretary for the youth of that party. Uh, there's a passage from The Guardian that gives good insight into how his initial foray into legitimate politics led to his radicalization. Quote, as a young man, Mujica went, for, uh, went to work for Enrique Aero, a popular left-wing politician, but had a political epiphany when he met Che Guevara in post-revolutionary Cuba. As much of Latin America fell victim to crises and decline, it was an Uruguayan writer, Eduardo Galeano, who penned a new Bible for the continent's left wing, the open veins of Latin America. The human murder by poverty in Latin America is secret, Galeano wrote in 1971. Every year, without making a sound, three Hiroshima bombs explode over communities that have become accustomed to suffering with clenched teeth. Which is a good way to phrase the devastation that poverty wreaks in a population. Like, yeah. the West is nuking us uh, every year. Um, 
you know, as a result of, and our, our leaders are nuking us every year as a result of like starvation. Uh, by 1964, after a year of escalating Robin Hood raids by the Tupamaros and several years of escalating police violence, Jose too decided that his country's political system had left him with no peaceful options. So he tries to get into legitimate politics, but he's very influenced by Che Guevara in particular. Um, and in 1964, he, he decides like, fuck it, uh, I'm going to join the guerrilla. And he, mm-hmm. he joins the guerrilla. Um, he receives training and he's soon living a split life. Uh, by day, he's a humble farmer. And by night, he's a revolutionary robbing banks and shit. Uh, he joined at a period when the Tupamaros were rapidly expanding and growing more comfortable with increasingly extreme acts of armed propaganda. In 1965, the Tupamaros bombed a local Bayer factory um, and their justification for this. So they blow up the this factory because Bayer internationally is making gases used by the U S military in Vietnam. So it's very much an attack. And it's one of, I think it's their first attack where it's not Mm -hmm. like we're doing this to protest local things. We're doing this to assert um, ourselves as part of the international struggle. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, uh, pretty interesting. Um, and things escalate from there. I want to quote now from a graduate thesis by Thomas Moore of Texas tech university quote, The Tupamaros suffered their first fatality in December 1966. Two weeks after a robbery at an armory, police located a vehicle that was suspected to have been involved. While in pursuit, a fierce gun battle erupted between the police and the occupants of the vehicle. During the battle, the vehicle ran into a tree and the occupants fled on foot. One of the occupants, later identified as Carlos Flores Alvarez, remained behind and covered his comrades' retreat with machine gun fire. The police returned fire and Flores Alvarez was killed. Inside the vehicle were two more machine guns and two pistols. Less than a week later, uh, later, another shootout with police cost the life of Mario Robiana Mendez, another Tupamaro. So the first couple of years they've got going on, nobody gets killed. Everything's pretty, uh, I mean, like violent, like violent in that they're using weapons and stuff. But like it, it, it they avoid things escalating to that level. 66 right. is when like now we're getting into gun battles and the cops and people are and people are dying. Um, right. And occasionally it's like people who are bystanders who are shot by either the Tupamaros or the or the cops, not intentionally, but because they're firing machine guns at each other wildly in a city, you know? Yeah. Like, like car chases are not exactly safe yeah. for people it's not safe for anybody. And, no. Yeah. Um, and again, they they avoid as much as possible direct gunfights with the police. Like this is never something they seek out. They are never like, mm-hmm. a, let's ambush a bunch of cops and kill them kind of group. Like mm-hmm. when they ambush police, it's generally to let's take their guns and like then rob this place and tie them up and stuff. Right. Um, and and it, this is largely just like it's not smart to get into a bunch of gunfights with the cops because your guys get killed. Um, yeah, yeah, it's usually yeah not the most strategic choice that one could make yeah your guys and your ladies because kind of like the pkk but much earlier the tupamaros are like very gender equal um and like one of the the decisions they come to early on is like there's no reason women shouldn't be fighting too um so a lot of and pe- the people some of the people who die are like women who are getting into machine gun fights with the cops um in this group it's a very like egalitarian insurgent organization <laughs> we can all get murdered by the we state. can all get murdered by the state everyone's <laughs> able to do that right um <laughs> Now, the Tupamaro organizational structure, the fact that there's all these independent cells, allows for a tremendous amount of group autonomy and experimentation. I haven't found much about this, but one of the cells is led by a priest, and I'm really interested in, like, how that went Ooh. down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, you got the whole liberation theology thing going yeah. on. And, and yeah. that's big in Uruguay. Yeah. Yeah. 
1966, a Montevideo theater was putting on a production of a play that necessitated military uniforms and rifles for some of the actors. Because it's good PR, the military's like, yeah, we'll loan you guys outfits and we'll give you some Mauser rifles. And so they're just being like stored at this theater. And so one day before the play, a group of pistol armed Tupamaros like busts in and steals all the guns and the uniforms. Then they dress up as soldiers and they rob a bank, making off 301,000 pesos, which is fucking very funny. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it was someone who worked at the theater who tipped him off. I know? think it was. It, like, I, I believe it was a, an employee at the theater who was like a Tupamaro or sympathetic who like tells them there's this stuff yeah. here. Yeah. It was probably was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give us some Mausers. You know, the, sh- the show be more authentic if you yeah. give us real Mausers, ones. yeah. And some big machine guns. Real. <laughs> yeah. A lot of ammunition for set dressing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. In 1967, the government struck back, rounding up several dozen Tupamaros uh, and building what they thought was an accurate picture of the group's membership. So this big bank raid, like mm-hmm. inspired, like the government does a huge crackdown. They actually catch and arrest a bunch of Tupamaros um, and they, they, they feel like, oh, we know who everyone. We know everything now. We've got like this whole organization dead to rights. Let's roll them up. And they 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 arrest a bunch of people and think that they've they've destroyed the organization. And so they announce in the press that they've dealt a mortal blow to the Tupamaros. Now, this was a mistake for the state because they actually had not. Um, and the Tupamaro proved that with the launch of their next major operation, the incredibly named Plan Satan. <laughs> wow. I hope it was the priest who came up with it. Yeah, I hope it's the fucking priest. Yeah. <laughs> So as their war had escalated, a number of guerrillas had suggested they start assassinating government officials in the street. Um, a decision Plan was made. Plan Satan. You, you well, don't, you that's don't not what say. Plan Satan is, because they don't. Oh. They do eventually do that. They don't start doing that because they're like, well, that might backfire. Maybe like so th- that's they're not never that s- operation. It just starts no. to escalate towards. It does, because they decide instead of assassinating people, they're going to carry out a campaign of kidnapping prominent business leaders and politicians and then ransoming them back to fund the revolution. Um, And also, this will this will show that the state is ineffective, right? Like, you can't even stop us from kidnapping government ministers. Like, clearly, you're not capable of, of running this country, right? That's like the big idea behind this is like, we will show the people that the state is not capable of of governing them by proving how impotent it is that's that's kind of their like the the propaganda justification of this i mean it, uh, that could also backfire really easily if just it does people being like, <laughs> yeah. oh we need the state because these yeah. people are running around kidnapping people yeah it doesn't quite i mean we'll talk about there's a okay. lot of debate over the degree to which this backfires um yeah but uh our pepe our future uruguayan president is intimately involved in plan satan mm-hmm. and i'm going to quote from the guardian here love that someone managed to get elected after being part of plan satan (laughs) yeah yeah a guy who was part of plan satan gets elected president (laughs) it's it is it's pretty dope it's 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 extremely dope yeah (laughs) so uh from the guardian quote on a spring day in 1969, Manus was at home with his sister, Beatrice, when the future president burst out of the lift outside of their penthouse in Montevideo with a pistol in his hand. Turn around, shut your mouth, and keep your hands above your head, he barked. Manus immediately recognized the pinched eyes and thick, wavy brown hair of one of the no- most notorious members of the daring, violent Tupamaro guerrillas. After his initial sense of panic subsided, he recalled, he felt strangely calm. I remember telling the young gunman who was with him not to worry that I wasn't going to do anything. The 62 
22-year-old travel agent told me when we met in his favorite Montevideo bookshop, a short distance from the murky waters of the immense River Plate. His sister, who suffered from polio and used a wheelchair, was taken off to another room. Don't worry, Muzika told her. You'll be fine. This has nothing to do with you. Um... And yeah, uh, Manis's stepfather, Jose Pedro Purpura, was a notorious judge with ties to Uruguay's far right and a stock of pistols. After the gang had left, taking documents and weapons, Manis told his relatives that he was only upset that the Tupamaros had stolen a typewriter he used for his schoolwork. The following day, the <laughs> phone rang. It is us, the same people from yesterday, a voice said. <laughs> he suddenly felt scared again. Somehow they knew about the typewriter. If he wanted it back, the voice told him, he could find it in the lobby of a nearby building. Sure enough, it was there, he said. They had left a, type, a typed message in it for my stepfather. Careful, doctor. It read, we are watching you. <laughs> it's fucking, yeah. <laughs> like, hey, kids, we know this isn't your fault, but we got to take your stepdad's guns. Um, oh, we stole your typewriter. We'll give it to you back, but we're also going to send a threat for your stepdad. <laughs> uh. um, it's It's pretty, it's pretty neat pretty fun stuff yeah i'm I'm glad they kept it classy longer like they keep it very classy because most groups start a little classy Mm -hmm. and then get real bad real quick we can debate i don't think they ever get real bad they do get much more violent and they do get comfortable assassinating people and like you can feel about that the way that you want they are never like the ira where they're setting off bombs and bars filled with just random people like they do not do that kind of shit um right there are civilians who get killed as a result of their actions never intentionally more as like yeah we're we're it's not that like we're we're not going to set off a bomb and it kills people and we're fine with that but we are going to get into gunfights with the cops sometimes and right people will die as a result of that like, right but they don't again, plan the people's death they do not plan i don't want to make an ethical death. no there's there's an ethical line somewhere yeah. and i i don't know where to draw that kind of line they do not what i the, my ethical line i guess is they do not as far as i've read they do not target groups of civilians for murder in order to create fear yeah that that's not a thing that they do um, which is good people which should is good do i that. think that's a bad thing to do yeah. <laughs> like I think, I think it is worth stopping people who yeah, do that yeah for all of my enjoyment of ira music i think bombing random bars is bad behavior yeah, <laughs> yeah no sir some other people um, have done similar anyway <laughs> a lot of people have done similar things yeah um and it's it's never a good thing i i don't like you know i i call them terrorists um because they are um but yeah, there's probably. a spectrum of things that you can do as terrorists yeah um and they are not like let's set off a suicide bomb in the middle of a packed market that's not right these dudes and ladies oh yeah you know who does set off bombs and wait wait robert wait. no no okay um savings bombs yeah savings bombs bombs of financial Margaret with the line <laughs> responsibility those kind of bombs the best kind of bombs are products no you services. got you got out punned on that one my friend yeah no that was that was much better Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine tingling shows on AE Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. All right, we're back. <laughs> and I'm going to continue to try to pronounce Jose Mujica's name right. I keep needing to listen to the pronunciation because it, it might, I keep drifting as I read it. Um, but Jose Mujica was part of some of the more creative acts of armed propaganda that the Tupamaros breached out into. Uh, and I'm going to quote from that same article, uh, the Guardian article, quote, In the summer of 1969, a police officer knocked on the door of a small Montevideo investment bank, which was partially owned by a government minister. The employees let him in, only to discover he was a Tupamaro. Several other guerrillas followed. They took the equivalent of $100,000 in today's money, but also demanded the bank's account ledgers. One of the employees, Lucia Topolansky, had tipped off the Tupamaros that the bank was doing illegal currency deals. Her twin sister, Maria Elia, was one of the guerrillas who conducted the raid. The Tupamaros dropped off the ledgers at the home of a public prosecutor, and some of those involved in the illegal trading were subsequently jailed. Um, that's fucking awesome. <laughs> we're going to rob this bank to get evidence of corruption in government and then we will hand that over to a prosecutor right and again you see like this is they're they are such a creative and flexible group that they're like mm -hmm. we are trying to overthrow the state we're also not against recognizing oh this prosecutor's an honest man we'll give him information that will that will reduce corruption and stuff because that's also good like they're 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 very pragmatic and willing to embrace like a real diversity of tactics. Like they're doing a lot of different shit. And also very like I think that shows the sort of non ideological nature because I have a hard time yeah coming up with someone who with with almost any isms, including like mm -hmm. my own, who, who would, would do that. Yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah. But they're very much. Um, yeah, they're very they're very good at pivoting, and this is a thing throughout their up to the modern point. They're mm -hmm. really good at just like kind of flowing, um, mm -hmm. which I think is why they have the impact that they do. That said, 1969 was what you might call the last good year for the Tupamaros, because after this point, things get a lot less fun and creative and a lot more violent and fucked up and scary, which is mm -hmm. inevitable when you are trying to overthrow a government using force, right? Like that is. Yeah. Every single one of these stories, um, things come to a head first near the end of 1969 when the Tupamaros execute a raid on a town called Pondo, which is like a part. I think it's like 
it's kind of a neighborhood of, it's called a town. It's kind of like, I think it's more of a town at this point. It's now, I often hear it referred to as just like a part of Montevideo, but it's like a, it's, it's high income, right? It's, it's a, mm-hmm. an area in this urban sprawl where people with a lot more money live. And on October 8th, the Tupamaros carry out their largest action ever, more than a hundred gorillas, um, uh, assemble inside Pando. And in order to all get together and into position without being noticed, a lot of them dress in a costume as members of a funeral entourage in order to elude suspicion. Once the signal was, or once they're um, in Pondo, groups of five to ten gorillas assemble outside a series of targets. And at one o'clock, a signal is given. Commandos put on white armbands to identify themselves in the event of a gunfight. And they carry out simultaneous attacks on the police commissary, the police station, the fire department, and two local banks. And again, they never, their goal is never to get into gunfights. So these are not, they're not just like coming and shooting to murder people. There's almost no resistance. And so nobody gets killed initially. Like they're, they're just taking guns, tying up people you know like they're there to raid and rob and take shit they're not attempting to murder everybody um and another group one of the groups raids the bank uh, armed with machine guns and pistols and while two tupamaros remove money from the bank a third hands out leaflets to civilians at the bank explaining why they're taking the money and what they're going to do with it um which is again awesome so they everything works out the initial stage of this raid goes great they steal millions of pesos but as they're exfiltrating they've got like a caravan of vehicles leaving they the police catch up basically and there's a series of gunfights there's a car chase and a roadblock and like the the founder of the two raul gets away with the money but like a group of tupamaros get their vehicle stopped and like have a big mm-hmm. gunfight with the cops three tupamaros get killed and 20 get captured um so it's it's a it's it's a, a, a very like pyrrhic victory right yeah um yeah and it, it, it things get a lot uglier for the tupamaros after this point um well, for their but part okay but if, if they're panning out the flyer i mean someone yeah. designed it and so somewhere there's someone who went to school for graphic design who's like this is my contribution i'm going to <laughs> yeah. make the flyers and i mean I'm really that person about that person i hope that person <laughs> made it through the entire thing totally unscathed her grandkids are like, you wouldn't believe what grandma used to do. Yeah. <laughs> she was in that gunfight with the cops. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she made the flyers. Yeah. So everything gets uglier, though, after this point. Now, for their part, uh, in terms of things getting uglier, the Tupamaros start carrying out target assassinations of, of mm. some government officials and police officials at this point. Um, and for its part, the government cracks down by going ultra-authoritarian. And I think the Tupamaros would argue, we started assassinating people when the government started torturing our people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the police would say that, like, the, the Tupamaros were so violent that, like, we had to use these, these radical measures. I think the torture comes first um it from what i can read their tupamaros are being tortured by the time they start carrying out assassinations um and the the government also cracks down by restricting freedom of speech so the news media is forbidden to refer to the tupamaros by name um and in order to get around this the tupamaros set up a radio transmitter in montevideo to hijack government-run radio channels and broadcast propaganda about their actions um which is again popular are they during all this Quite. We'll talk about that in a bit, but like that's part of why they get away with it is most of the people seem to be pretty supportive of this. Like they're extremely popular. Um, in July 1970, the Tupamaros made what would prove to be one of their worst strategic decisions. They kidnapped Dan Mitrione, an American citizen. Um, which is always a dicey thing to do, especially for a leftist movement in 1970s Latin America. Yeah. uh Um, 
Yeah. Now, one source I found described Dan Mitrione as, quote, an American policeman on loan to the Uruguayan security forces. I've also heard him described as an FBI agent working with them. When you yeah. hear an American <laughs> policeman on loan to the Uruguayan security forces, what do you assume his, was his actual employer? The CIA. Yeah, it's the CIA. And Dan Mitrione's job is to teach people how to do torture. Um, he had previously consulted for the Brazilian government, and his specialties were electrocution and slow strangulation. So, so I feel really good about them having chosen. This I'm, I'm very I can see like how it wasn't a strategic plan. But. It's not a good strategic move morally. If yeah. your job is to travel to different countries and teach them how to strangle people, I don't think you getting kidnapped is bad. No. <laughs> like that, is, that is my moral line. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm going to quote from a write-up by War is Boring here. While torture was part of the government's unofficial policy prival to Mitrione's arrival, he is often credited with making it widespread among the Uruguayan police force and extolling the value of applying, quote, and this is Dan, the precise pain and the precise place and the precise amount for the desired effect. He was known in particular for his expertise in applying as much electrical shock as possible to the genitals without causing death and for pioneering the use of thin wire that could be placed between the teeth to intensify pain during electrocution. So a cool dude, Dan. Yeah, yeah, definitely not just the fodder of like every trashy spy movie ever. Yeah. You know that this guy has like black gloves that are very oh, yeah. tight and yeah. Mm-hmm. And some weird sexual hangups, probably a serial killer back in the US. <laughs> yeah. And like, like very some... particular about how, where everything in the apartment goes. So the Tupamaros responded the, to the escalation of violence in kind and specifically targeted Mitrione. They kidnapped the CIA agent in July of 1970. The Tupamaros rarely killed anyone and did not have a reputation for killing those they kidnapped. Instead, they would exchange them for cash ransoms or release the imp- of the imp- of imprisoned Tupamaros. However, with the government assault on them proving more effective, several leaders of the movement were killed or arrested while Mitrione was being held in the Tupamaros underground people's prison. When the deadline for Mitrione's ransom came, and went, the new Tupamaro leadership was uncertain of how to respond. They executed him. And I should note, there are allegations, at least. I don't know how credible. I haven't found a lot of detail on this. There are allegations that the people's prison tortures folks as well. Um, probably. I don't probably. I don't know. Again, there are also allegations from, in a lot of cases, guys doing torture. So, like, I don't right. I don't know. But probably, right? They're probably doing some of that themselves. Um, which, you know. It, uh nobody's a good guy when you when it yeah. comes time to be a war um there's a better guy and i think the people who are not being helped by the traveling torture electrocute your testicles dude are probably the better people <laughs> in this situation yeah. the people who kidnap the the strangler are often better than the strangler yeah i would say better than the strangler even though as things get brutal perhaps they do some strangling themselves or yeah. at least like holding people in solitary confinement and shit um yeah. look i'm sure the people's prison isn't nice either you know <laughs> like, no um so they execute dan um which again i don't uh, I don't have a moral problem with that. If your job is to hook up electrodes to people's testicles and like the people who are you torturing, like kill you. I I don't have a moral issue with that, but it's not a great, I don't think it's a good idea for them for a couple of reasons. Like it doesn't work. It didn't Um, go well, I guess it didn't, it doesn't go well. A lot of the sources you'll find, especially like the guardian kind of more liberal sources will say that this is what leads to a loss of public support. And they, they often are kind of sources that leave out the fact that Dan tortured people for the CIA, the ones that are like, this was like a bad move for them. I don't know how 
badly this hurts them locally. I don't know how much this is actually an unpopular move. Um, we get one hint in that in 1972, there's an Uruguayan Gallup poll. Um, and this is two years or so after they kill Dan. Um, and after two more years of, because the, the violence escalates after they kill Dan. And this 1972 poll finds that there's still widespread support for the guerrillas, um, mm-hmm. even though the majority of Uruguayans want nonviolent resolution to their political ills. So most, most Uruguayans do not support violent revolution, but they are also broadly feel fondly towards the Tupamaros, right? Um, in a lot of cases, because the government is, is, is increasingly militarizing, they're like carrying out these huge dragnets that impact people's lives. So like the Tupamaros rob a bank and that doesn't really fuck with people living in the area, but then the police set up a huge dragnet and that fucks up things for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so like, they're angry at the cops more so than the Tupamaros. I don't know that killing Dan hurt the Tupamaros with Uruguayans. Um, but it's not good for another reason, uh, which is that now a CIA agent has been killed. Um, and so the United States is like, well, that's all the justification we needed to get way more involved in this shit. Um, so yeah. the U.S. accelerates their support of the increasingly right-wing Uruguayan government. The CIA funnels money and equipment in, and they they funnel all of their money and equipment and manpower through one of their favorite vehicles, the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID. Like, that is how oh. all of their, like, here's how to torture people guys get, like, ledgered out as like this is part of an aid package you know <laughs> um i want to quote from a paper called tracking the tupamaros by lucas hall of union college quote the united states began to offer its assistance in the form of military aid to the uruguayan government throughout the 1960s and into the 1970s uh, throughout the civic military dictatorship although the united states initially provided military aid in order to squash the tupamaros eventually it provided aid in order to suppress the left in general for example the uruguayan government first declared a state of siege government limitation on personal freedom in 1963 following a worker strike at an electric company in montevideo and thereafter in 1965 67 68 and 69 in response to various protests organized by laborers or insurgent activities perpetrated by the Tupamaros. Such governmental decrees intensified conflicts among laborers, guerrilla movements like the Tupamaros, and the increasingly authoritarian government. Moreover, following the 1966 elections, Uruguay reabandoned the National Council and reinstituted the presidential system, which reinforced executive power. Following the death of the newly elected Colorado president and military general Oscar Diego Gestido, Pose a year later, Castillo's vice president, George Pacheco Areco, assumed the presidency and used his executive power to pursue and defeat the Tupamaros. In 1971, he decreed that the armed forces would intervene in the battle against the military movement, against the guerrilla movements. So that's kind of like the political. And, and this is one of the points. A lot of people will say that the Tupamaros brought on the dictatorship that is coming because of their resistance. And as kind of that passage points out, they were a part of the process by which the state became increasingly dictatorial. But a lot right. of the state's dictatorial decrees are in response to just workers protests right. um, that are not organized by the Tupamaros because other stuff is happening in the left here. Um, and I think that like when when primarily Western sources, but although not entirely, there are some Uruguayans who will blame them for it too. But when I, I think primarily when like Western sources say, well, we got the, the Uruguay got the dictatorship because of the Tupamaros. They're ignoring the fact that 
the dictatorship came in and was backed by the U.S. as part of a broad attempt to stop all left-wing organizing in the country, including all of these like workers' movements. And the Tupamaros, because they were the guerrilla movement, are a really convenient group to blame because kind of liberals always like to blame the people who are accepting violence, even though like, well, they also instituted states of emergency because they were fucking protests. Like, right. let, yeah, like don't don't put this all on the Tupamaros. You know? Right. Yeah, it's a very, very classic means by which mm-hmm. to try and get the left to eat itself. Yes. Um, and it doesn't really work in Uruguay, which is interesting, but we'll, we'll, we're getting to that. So Areco, the president who like brings the military in to fight the Tupamaros, doesn't isn't quite a dictator, although Uruguayans may quibble with that. Like, I don't think mm. he does. He's not quite as far as the next guy is what I'll say. Um, yeah, how did the guy die in the. In the I don't, I did. don't, I don't know. I think it was natural causes though. Oh, okay. It, it was not, I was trying to it was not, got, got I, off. I, I don't think so. Um, okay. yeah. So, uh, Areco is, was is it the, the guy, strangler? <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he preps the path for dictatorship and he kind of ushers Uruguay into the dictatorship that's coming. Uh, I've mentioned a few times that the Tupamaros escalated their violence in response to state violence and Hall credits this less with desperation than to the, again, the fact that this is a very pragmatic group. So the Tupamaros are like, let's try not killing people. And then when mm. it escalates to a more violent, more gunfighting thing, they're like, well, let's become a, a straight up insurgent group, you know, um, like they're very willing to kind of like weave with things. And so they mm-hmm. pivot because they don't have a hard and fast ideology. They're kind of happy to be mostly nonviolent or happy to be mostly violent, depending on like what the situation calls for. <laughs> and in the early seventies, when the military gets in, they're like, well, now it's time to kill more people. Um, and not a lot of people. I think about 300 Tupamaros get killed and they, they kill about 50 people. Um, so as insurgent movements go again, these guys are not like, we're not bombing military convoys and stuff, you know? Right. Um, that I'm said, sure if they it, wanted, they could have had a more uh, closer yes. parody if they, if they, if they'd wanted to. Yes. Um, but, um, this doesn't work in any case, uh, violence escalates and the government's much better at doing violence, right? The, the two Pomaros. Yeah. yeah. Like if you're going, I think it is this situation where like, if you're going to do that, um, they will probably be better than you at it. It's, it's yeah. very rarely that a guerrilla movement takes on the entire apparatus of the state and uh and wins it happens and usually they have to do some very ugly shit in order to make that work um and have some other things break their way and have a lot of foreign aid and all this stuff anyway whatever it does not work here uh president pacheco grows increasingly dictatorial everybody knows shit is bad and again there's a lot of left-wing organizing outside of the tupamaros critical of the tupamaros there's the what what a lot of scholars i read will call the legal left in uruguay um Mm -hmm. who has this kind of mixed relationship where they appreciate them they may agree with overall goals but not the means and Kind of as they Uruguay hits this point where like the the military has been brought in, we can all see that a dictatorship is coming. The whole left kind of unifies behind this idea of like, well, let's try one last legal push to stop this. Let's mm-hmm. see if there is a way within the the democratic system to to avoid this before it becomes an, a straight up dictatorship. Um, and so all these folks on the legal left form an organization called the Frente Amplio, which means broad front. And it's like, it's a popular front coalition, right? Mm-hmm. We've talked about this in the behind the insurrections episodes and like happens in Spain, happens in France, happens in a bunch of places. So they build a popular front coalition of left parties and groups aimed at resisting the authoritarian creep under Pacheco Areco. Um, by 1971, dozens of Tupamaros have been 
thousand killed, hundreds tortured, and the guerrilla organization agrees to sit down with the Frente Amplio, with the legal left, and work together in this a- this effort to l- try and legally stop a dictatorship. Um, okay. The Tupamaros announce a sort of ceasefire for the nineteen seventy one elections. Like we're not going to do insurgent shit. We're gonna we're gonna try to do electoral shit. Again, they're good at pivoting, right? right. Um, and they form a political wing, the March twenty sixth movement or twenty six M, which declares support for the Frente Amplio. So the Tupamaros are like, "Hey, we're not going to do any attacks right now. We're let's we, we formed a political organization and we have joined this broad front coalition of left wing political parties." Right. Um, This was a really difficult thing to pull off because, again, Uruguay has a two-party system at least as fucked up as ours is currently. It is hard. And they're trying to make a third party, right? Like, they're not unified with kind of the vaguely liberal party. They are trying to do their own thing. Um, Right. And it, it's 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 a significant attempt, right? Like it is not a, an easy thing to pull off. Uh, quote from Lucas Hall's article. The Tupamaros, beyond expressing their support for the party through the formation of the 26M, humbled themselves in order to further strengthen the Frente's electoral position. Amid rumors of a military coup, for example, the Tupamaros pres- uh, participated with former members of the armed forces and other members of the security apparatus in Plan Contragolpe, a mo- movement intended to prevent the onset of authoritarian dictatorship. However, despite such efforts, the Frente Amplio failed to gain the support needed to topple the traditional parties. Uh, However credible its written program and general principles might have been for a large sector of the citizenry, the support of the uh, Tupamaro party positioned the Frente Amplio as an extremist option. As a result, it was especially difficult for the Frente to win the support of voters on the countryside, even that of voters outside Montevideo. Nonetheless, the results of the elections were surprising. First, although he received received the most votes, the Constitution prevented President Pacheco from serving a second term, and the electoral effort to amend that law was disapproved. As a result, Pacheco's hand-picked suppressor, Juan Maria Bordaberry Arosina, won the presidency. Second, although it only won 18% of the vote, the Frente Amplio won 30% of the vote in Montevideo. In other words, nearly a fifth of the total population and a third of the population of Montevideo was disaffected with the current political system. Although the other four-fifths of the population voted for the traditional parties, this figure represents the first time in Uruguay's electoral history that a non-traditional party garnered considerable support from a significant portion of the population, suggesting that, at least in the city, the Tupamaros' armed propaganda campaign had, had been successful in influencing all sides of the left to challenge the established order. And this is interesting to me because, again, a lot of the non-scholarly sources who are kind of like journalists summarizing the history will say that, like, Mm -hmm. they they led to the failure of the left electorally. And Lucas Hall wasn't going to win anyway. Yeah, left wasn't going to win anyway. But this some academics, at least, I'm not I'm not trying to claim what's in this Lucas Hall article, although he does cite a number of Uruguayan academics. I'm not trying to say that this is the absolute consensus, but there is a substantial academic argument that actually the Tupamaros armed propaganda campaign is why, for the first time ever, the left as a third party gains a really significant chunk of the vote. Um, Yeah. That's an argument you can make. That said, time had run out 
1971 election was sadly their last attempt to for their last chance to forestall a dictatorship. Um, the Frente Amplio did succeed in destroying the two party system in Uruguay, but the election of 1971 destroyed democracy. President Bordaberry <laughs> seized total power after taking office, uh, although he himself was more or less just a stand in for the military. This is not really like a fascist thing where like he's taking power. He is the guy mm-hmm. the military has being the face of the military dictatorship, right? That's okay. kind of how it works in Uruguay. It's less like about the individual and more that like, and not that like he's not part of the decision-making apparatus, but he's like one of a bunch of guys making this military dictatorship be a thing. Um, and from what I can tell, the military's attitude is like, well, we let you civilians try to get things under control. It's time for like the military to fuck shit up for everybody because that'll be yeah. better. Um, and spoilers, it's not. It's oh, real wait. bad dictatorship. Yeah. Huh. Um, a lot of kind of casual sources, again, like the, yeah, will blame the Tupamaros for the onset of dictatorship. I'm not going to say they didn't have any, like, obviously, they are a major part of Uruguayan politics as the country descends into a dictatorship. Of course, they had a role in what happened, right? Um, I think saying that because of the Tupamaros, Uruguay gets a dictatorship. Number one, it, it ignores that Uruguay falls to dictatorship alongside Chile, Argentina, El Salvador, Guatemala. <laughs> like a bunch of other countries, all of uh-huh. whom the U.S. is doing the same shit they're doing it to Uruguay yeah. in, and none of whom have Tupamaros themselves. Um, so I and when you when you knock everyone off the fence, yeah, when you, when you polarize society, you're like lining up for a fight, and you're either mm-hmm. going to win or lose. It's not yeah. inherently. Like, it's not necessarily the fault of the people who knock everyone off the fence, you know? No, they are, again, part of this process. It certainly would yeah. be unreasonable to say they had nothing to do with the dictatorship, right? right? Like, they're a huge factor in Uruguayan politics. But also, the dictatorship comes into power in part because the government's trying to crack down on, like, unions and labor organizing and stuff. Out That's not right. people pulling guns. Um, that's a big chunk of what happens. And yeah, that is where we're going to end part one. Because thankfully, Margaret, unlike a lot of unfortunately a lot of uh, latin american history we're not talking about like and then they get crushed and right-wing governments take power for the next 60 years and <laughs> the u.s trains their security forces over and over again and now they're burning down the ammo like whatever like this is not that story it does not have no. that ending um but we'll get to that it's ending a christmas in miracle two. it is a christmas miracle margaret that's what everybody says um i'm gonna go get my uruguay tree tomorrow um <laughs> you got any pluggables to plug? Uh, yes, I do. I, I have a new book out. It was actually a book that's been out for a while, but it's been re-released with a new publisher. It's called A Country of Ghosts. And it's my attempt to answer the question of people always ask, well, they, we know what you anarchists are against. What are you for? And so I tried to write a book um, that's fiction because I don't read a lot of theory. And yeah. And that's, yeah. it just came out a couple weeks ago, I think. Um, that's my main pluggable. I'm also on it's, the internet. It's good as hell and very relevant to the story we're telling here, although uh, more mountains, uh, less urban. Hmm? Yeah, no, it's the, it's the Switzerland comparison. Yeah, it's, it's, it is kind of a Switzerland <laughs> sort of deal, but yeah. yeah. Um, I reckon I, I, I tore through it uh, in, an, in a, a long weekend day. Uh, last weekend and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it um and it's also i mean kudos to aak on this one of the books that has like the little flaps on the inside of the covers so that you can mark your page without folding the 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 pages over which i really appreciate 
I was really excited. It's my first. Yeah. It's, it's my first book with French flaps, and it's my first mm. book with a painted fantasy cover on the cover. Oh, you have such a good cover. Yeah. I'm so excited about it. Yeah, and then, so now I need to write a book with a dragon. Because you do. Then you need I can, to write a sequel to this book with a dragon, but. Yeah. Oh, that's actually. Okay, yeah. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, you can find me nowhere because I'm a gray ghost, baby. That's the end of the episode, Sophie. Okay. Hello, world. I'm Robert, and I'm doing a live stream with my good friend Prop. If you want to listen to that, Sophie won't let me curse, so this ad isn't very entertaining. But it's going to be February 17th at 6 p.m. PST. And you Check can it out. find it at uh, momenthouse.com slash behind the bastards. Allegedly. It, yeah, this is a, a, you know, a good holiday gift or a not, Allegedly. Or not a holiday gift or a Allegedly. Gift. But we'll be doing a we'll be doing a behind the bastards and and in a little Q and A. Allegedly, up, be there if you want to. Where where can people find that again, Robert? Momenthouse.com slash behind the bastards. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating Pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.